from Kirkco Media. Coming up on the show. Cancer of all kinds, including prostate cancer, is curable if you find it in time because we can do surgery or radiation and cure you. But unfortunately, in about 50,000 men per year, we find the cancer too late. Out of 4,500 hospitals ranked by U.S. News, Johns Hopkins Medicine ranks in the top three in the country. I personally have watched people travel from the farthest corners of the globe to access the quality of care, cutting-edge technology, and benefit from the research performed at Johns Hopkins. One of the many doctors responsible for Johns Hopkins' reputation and top ratings in urology and oncology is Dr. Kenneth Pienta. And he'll be joining us today on Medicine We're Still Practicing. I'm Bill Curtis. Well, first, of course, our host, quadruple board certified doctor of internal medicine, pulmonary disease, critical care, and neurocritical care, and still fighting on the front lines of the war on COVID, my very good friend, Dr. Stephen Tabak. How you doing, Steve? I'm well, thank you. As you've heard, joining us from Johns Hopkins Medicine, Dr. Kenneth Pienta. He's the director of research for the James Buchanan Brady Urological Institute. He's the co-director prostate cancer research program for the Sidney Kimmel Cancer Center. He's a professor of urology. He's a professor of oncology. He's a professor of pharmacology and molecular sciences. Welcome, Dr. Pienta. What do you do with all your spare time? (laughs) Ken, this is not meant to be a softball question, but it's going to sound that way. I'm, I'm trying to understand from your inside perspective, what is it about the environment you work in at Johns Hopkins that produces these kind of outcomes, these ratings, and this international recognition? Well, I think part of it is tradition. Johns Hopkins was founded as the first research university in the United States, and we've always placed the tripartite mission of patient care, education to students, and research on equal footing so that we're always seamlessly combining those. And the other piece of tradition is Johns Hopkins Hospital and and the medical school itself. We defined American medicine at Johns Hopkins with William Osler starting out saying, we're going to do medicine differently. You know, the term medical resident started at Johns Hopkins because Osler made the doctors live in the hospital to be trained. And so that's where the term residents came from. You know, we have this dome at the hospital with, with the wings of the old building and medicine rounds referred to the fact that they would go round and round the dome to the different wards. And, you know, we carry that sort of tradition with great pride and people love to work there. And we've always attracted really smart people who love medicine and love taking care of people and really love combining that with the research that powers the next generation of medicines forward. Dr. Parton, your department chair, Mm -hmm. talked about while other hospitals use robots for urological surgery, Hopkins actually makes their own robots. (laughs) Is it you're making like Da Vinci robots? No, we use commercial robots like everyone else. But what we are doing is creating the next generation of robots to work with MRI machines. We have Dan Stanoyevici in our department is making a special robot that does that. The Hopkins Whiting School of Engineering is developing the next generation of robots to integrate imaging with robotic surgery. 
a lot of that is not just hardware, it's software. We're living in a pretty high-tech era. We've come a long way in medicine, but still so many men die of prostate cancer. What are we messing up here and what do we have to do to fix this? So, you know, in this time of COVID and so many people dying of COVID, you know, it's an infectious disease. We've got to do better. And we tend to forget about these other illnesses that are plaguing the planet. You know, if you look around the world, 10 million people a year are dying of cancer. In the U.S., 600,000 people are dying of cancer. 30,000 men die of prostate cancer every year. And cancer of all kinds, including prostate cancer, is curable if you find it in time because we can do surgery or radiation and cure you. But unfortunately, in about 50,000 men per year, we find the cancer too late. We find the cancer after it has escaped the prostate. And metastatic cancer, virtually of all kinds, is incurable. And prostate cancer, unfortunately, metastasizes or spreads to the bones as really its first site. And it causes a lot of problems for guys in the bones, and including pain, and eventually kills them. And we can talk about how that happens. But essentially, we fail because we don't cure people because we don't find the cancer in time. Let me ask you a question about that, actually, because I've been quoted by colleagues that if you're 50 years old, you have a 50% chance that you actually have prostate cancer. And at 60, you have a 60% chance that you mm -hmm. probably already have prostate cancer and so on and so forth. And it would beg the question, would it not make sense to prophylactically remove the prostate? And then obviously the, the major impediment to that is the major side effects. Mm -hmm. What is the thought process about that? And, and where are we in terms technologically of mitigating the terrible side effects of impotence and incontinence? So I think there's two aspects to that question, Steve, that we just need to touch on. Because the other thing you hear all the time is that, oh, prostate cancer, you don't have to worry about it. You're going to die with it, not from it. You know, we do see that 80% of men age 80 if you look in their prostates, if they've gotten killed by a car accident, you'll see prostate cancer. So essentially, prostate cancer exists in two forms. One form is this indolent, slow-growing, low-grade cancer that probably shouldn't even be called a cancer, but it still is. And we find it by screening. And, and those are the guys that can be treated with active surveillance. We don't need to treat their cancers. We're a lot smarter about that now than we were even a few years ago. The other kind of cancer is the aggressive prostate cancer that is not the kind you find on autopsy, but is the kind that's growing quickly that we have to get out before it spreads. So prostate cancer is definitely has a hereditary component. If you have a father or an uncle who had prostate cancer, your, your risk of developing prostate cancer is double. If you have two family members, it quadruples. And if you had three family members, you're going to get it. So it is familial. There are some genetic drivers like BRCA2 that lead to a higher incidence of prostate cancer. And we definitely say if you have family history, you should start screening sooner. What are the signs that men should look for, which means perhaps they should come see you or someone you recommend? Yeah, so that's the problem. There are no signs. There are no signs until it's too late. And that's why we recommend and all the, the major medical associations recommend that starting at age 50, 
you should at least have a discussion with your caregiver about whether you want to get screened. The screening consists of a prostate-specific antigen blood test, a PSA blood test, as well as a digital rectal exam. And you should have that yearly, starting at age 50. If you're African-American or have a positive family history, you should start that at age 45 or even 40. Why is that controversial? It's controversial because before we were smarter about active surveillance, we were probably over-treating men with that low-grade kind of cancer. But the whole way we treat prostate cancer has really evolved a lot over the last few years. And what about the PSA? Because I've heard so many stories about perhaps you shouldn't even do it because it gives you confounding results that an elevated PSA is not necessarily indicative of cancer. You see it with prostatitis. You see it for syndromes that are may, may, may not even be related to cancer. What is your feeling about PSA? And should everybody in addition be going for more of a high-resolution MRI of the prostate? And where does that fit into the surveillance? Yeah. So PSA, it's the best cancer biomarker ever discovered, but it's also got some drawbacks. And that's because it's not just made by cancer cells. It's made by all prostate cells, including if you get benign prostatic hypertrophy, or if you get prostatitis, an infection of the prostate, or if you get any kind of inflammation, PSA can go up. Let's look at the numbers. If you look at the U.S. per year, about 10 million men have a PSA blood test drawn. Of those 10 million, 1 million of them have a PSA that's greater than 4, which is the trigger number for saying you need to have a closer look about whether you have prostate cancer or not. Of those million that have that PSA greater than 4, only about 200,000 of them, they all get biopsied. And only about 200,000 of them have cancer. Of those 200,000, about 100,000 of them turn out to have that low-grade cancer that people can live with anyways. So the ding against PSA is that 10 million people get tested to find 100,000 men that need to be treated. And, you know, it's a cheap blood test as we're smarter about these paradigms. We still need better tests, right? For the, those million guys that are getting biopsied and 800,000 are getting a, a biopsy they didn't need to get because it was negative. We're looking for other urine biomarkers. We're looking for other blood biomarkers. We're doing MRIs to see if we can rule out somebody needing further testing like a needle going into the prostate. But we're not there yet. We haven't found anything that's going to impact that significantly. For you know, 100,000 being worked up, to me, I say, who cares? It's a minimal cost. To me, it's the anxiety of you know, the number of people who are getting tested have an elevated PSA, now are in panic mode, where only a small number of those actually go on to have the disease. And then I look at it from the intensivist side, because how many people have, have come into the unit after a simple prostate biopsy that now are in septic shock, because you're obviously biopsying an area that's you know, notoriously very clean and filled with bacteria. And it would seem like we should be further along in terms of our ability to do better surveillance. So first of all, I don't want listeners to think that everybody who gets biopsies gets septic. It's actually a pretty rare event. As I mentioned earlier, we're working on a, a robot that works with an MRI machine so it doesn't have any metal in it. That'll allow us to zero in on a lesion that we see by MRI and then be able to put a needle in it very specifically. 
but even more on the horizon right now, it's happening live time, is, as Steve mentioned, the reason guys get septic, meaning that they get in bacteria in their blood, is that the current way to do a biopsy is you have to stick a probe in the rectum and you have to push that needle across the rectal wall and sometimes poops gets through, so to speak. What we've been developing now is what's called a perineal biopsy approach, where you go in sort of underneath the testicles in the scrotum and go in that way into the prostate. And that area sort of between your, you know, in in the fold of your legs basically is called the, the perineum. And you stick a needle through there, you don't have, you never hit the rectum. So all you're doing is cleaning up the skin and going through there. It doesn't hurt any more than the other kind of biopsy because you get numbed up and virtually leads to no septic episodes. The other thing, and this is a bit wonkish, but that Steve probably can appreciate, one of the reasons why cancers get missed, prostate cancer gets missed, is that the side of the prostate farthest from the rectum is called the anterior prostate. And for a needle to go from the rectum through to the anterior prostate, that needle has to be really long and they're only so long. So the cancer has to get pretty big before they find it. And it turns out that guys with anterior prostate cancers have bigger tumors when they're found and more often those have escaped and metastasized. So the perineal approach actually gets rid of that because you're coming across the other way and the needle doesn't have to be any longer, but you sample that part of the prostate better. Let me ask you a question. If you've had an MRI and you have absolutely no lesions on the MRI, would there be a time when you would still proceed with a biopsy in spite of the fact that you're not seeing a focal lesion? Yeah. So MRI is not as good as you're thinking it is. MRI is much better than CT scan, but it's still, even with the three Tesla magnet, the prostate is so heterogeneous that it's pretty easy to hide a cancer in there. And we're better at it than we used to be. But MRI is not yet ready to be a gold standard to replace a biopsy. So you're still using the PSA elevation as your main indicator, or are there other indicators that you're using? PSA elevation is still the number one reason to get a biopsy. We do our biopsies using MRI ultrasound fusion systems so that we are looking at an MRI to try and if we see something on an MRI, we're pretty sure we need to biopsy that. And then we use the ultrasound, the computer fuses to the ultrasound image and that guides us in. But if the MRI doesn't see something, it doesn't mean it's not there. So it's sensitive, but not specific. Ergo, your recommendation, just to repeat for our listeners, is that after the age of 50, they get an annual rectal exa- a digital rectal exam and a PSA test. Correct. We're going to take 30 seconds and we'll be right back. Hi, I'm Robert Ross, host of Cars That Matter. You might be wondering what makes a car matter, and I have a feeling you already know the answer. Some cars have changed history. Some you can hear a mile away. Some have lines that make your heart skip a beat. If a car has ever made you look twice, then I think you know the ones that matter. Join me as I speak with designers, collectors, and market experts about the passions that drive us and the passions we drive. Cars That Matter, wherever you get your podcasts. 
We're back with Dr. Kenneth Fienta and Dr. Stephen Tabak. Some years ago, I got a chance to tour your Proton Therapy Center, which is probably the most amazing site anybody can see. Do you use proton therapy with urological issues like this, or do you kind of go right to, you don't really need your prostate, it's better off if it comes out? Prostate cancer that is localized to the prostate can be cured in two ways. One is surgery to remove the prostate. The other is some form of radiation therapy that certainly involves external beam radiation therapy, which means that the photons are generated outside the body and shot into the prostate area. Or, you know, there's still some cases where we use seed implants as well as external beam radiation therapy. When you take external beam radiation, you can break it down into photon external beam radiation therapy and proton external beam radiation therapy. And proton machines were originally designed because they can be very accurate in treating the planning and hitting their what they're supposed to hit. And not doing too much other damage. Right, and sparing normal tissue. And actually, the first use of protons were for like kids with spinal tumors, where you really had to protect that spinal cord. To be honest, protons work great for prostate cancer, but they don't work better because we have something called computed tomography, plant conformal 3D planning, which basically means we use a CT scan in multiple parameters to draw lines around the prostate, treat just that. And so protons are just as good, but not better for prostate. So guys who want to get radiation rather than surgery, they have a choice between photons and protons. And quite frankly, it doesn't matter. Would you hesitate to be using radiation I would imagine for the most part, if you've not had any metastasis, but would you be using radiation and hormone type therapy in a young man with prostate cancer? Yeah. So great question. And the reality again is it's patient choice. Both are equally curative and there are guys who do not want to get cut. They don't want a knife near them. And they look at the statistics of incontinence and impotence, and maybe they're a little better with radiation, maybe not. But because it's equally curative, they choose that. I'm not out of place to say more young men choose surgery than radiation, but it's also a choice. But most guys, younger guys especially, go, I don't want to live with cancer in me, get it out. I want to see it in the bucket, so to speak. And that's really reasonable. So you've actually mentioned it, though, so we should probably go a little further. The the side effects of both, I guess you see it with radiation, but it's certainly more advertised with surgery of incontinence and impotence. What percentage are we talking about of those people who undergo treatment that wind up with long-term incontinence and or impotence? Yeah, so always a tricky question, but not so tricky. So the first thing you have to ask is, how good was the guy's erections before he started, right? Because everybody's having sex five days a week and even when they're 70 and that's part of it, right? But the reality is you do have to have a good erection to start with. Take that aside, the major side effects, the major morbidities associated with a radical prostatectomy are incontinence and impotence. And of course, at Johns Hopkins, Pat Walsh, defined and pioneered the nerve-sparing radical prostatectomy. Before he started doing that in the 80s, no guy was able to get an erection after surgery because you took the nerves out that helped you get an erection. 
Now what they try to do is there's two nerve bundles on each side of the prostate. You only need one of them to have an erection. So the surgeons try to leave the one on the side that doesn't have cancer, so to speak. What would you say would be the percentage of men who wind up having their pre-surgical function remain post-op? Yeah. So it takes a while to recover, but I think most folks would say it's 75 to 80% of men will recover their ability to have sex and have good sex. So obviously we've been talking about surgery as an option for the treatment of prostate cancer. And maybe speaking for the men listeners, it would be nice not to ever have to even deal with surgery or prostate cancer treatment. The question is, Is there something that a man can do relative to lifestyle or diet that will actually have a real impact on preventing prostate cancer? I wish there was. Unlike so many cancers where we know true risk factors, prostate cancer is not one of those cancers where we can alter lifestyle in a way that we know is going to decrease your risk of prostate cancer. I can tell you, this is just good health advice, right? Obesity is bad. Being fat is bad. If you look at all men with prostate cancer, those men who are overweight, who are diagnosed with prostate cancer, or no matter when they're diagnosed, their overall mortality, cancer-specific mortality, is higher than if you're not overweight. I see. So... Is there an immunotherapy that is currently under research for prostate cancer? So there are several that are being studied for prostate cancer. And the history of prostate cancer and immunotherapy is actually pretty interesting because the first immunotherapy that was ever really approved for a cancer was Provenge, the special vaccine therapy that was so controversial back in the 90s about whether we should be giving that to people. But when you really talk about immunotherapy these days, you're talking about the checkpoint inhibitors, the immunotherapies that let the immune system turn on to fight cancer, and that are so successful in diseases like melanoma, kidney cancer, now bladder cancer, and just about every other cancer, but not prostate. Prostate cancer, there is no approved immunotherapy. We are on multiple generations of testing for new immunotherapies. We are defining subsets of men who will respond to a checkpoint inhibitor, but that's, it's a small percentage of men with prostate cancer, somewhere in the range of 3 to 5%. We can identify those guys now, and we'll give it to them, but immunotherapy to date is not a success story for prostate cancer. So, I mean, historically, we've seen men on Lupron, and you said, if you come to me, chances are I'm going to remove your testicles which implies that the male hormone is a negative factor relative to prostate cancer. And yet I've heard mixed feelings and mixed opinions about this, especially as men grow older, their testosterone levels often wane. And many men are seeking for testosterone replenishment for various reasons. Is that a negative factor relative to prostate cancer? It would seem that if you're giving medications like Lupron, which would kind of bolster female hormones, that male hormones would be a negative and a contraindicated form of therapy. Where do you stand on that? And what's the state of the art relative to testosterone and prostate? The story is, is the male hormone, the androgen, what makes us men, is this hormone testosterone. 
And testosterone is a very, it helps the prostate grow up to be a, a mature prostate and actually acts as a differentiating agent. It helps it function. So there's no question that it also drives prostate cancer cells to grow. And if you have prostate cancer that's fully developed and is a true cancer, then testosterone is helping that cancer to grow. And if it spreads beyond the prostate and we can't treat it locally, the mainstay of therapy, the first line therapy is to medically castrate you, meaning that we give you a shot of this medicine called Lupron. It tells the brain to stop sending signals to the testicles to make testosterone. That causes the cancer to regress, go to sleep. It doesn't cure men with prostate cancer, but it puts them in remission for usually multiple years. But men who have true hypogonadism as they age, and you replace them to a normal level of testosterone for their age, they are at no higher increased risk of developing prostate cancer. That's been well established. I'm curious for either one of you, if you get tested at age 59 and you're negative, when you're 60, do you still have a 60% chance of having it? Or at that point, is it much lower? No. So again, we're getting into a little bit of apples and oranges here. So when you talk about that 60% of guys age 60 who have prostate cancer, you're really talking about that indolent form that's never going to raise its ugly head. And that's the same no matter what, whether you're 59 or 60, that amount is going to be there in those men. What we're really screening for is we're trying to find the the men who are going to have their cancer growing and developing. So the guy who's 59, let's say his PSA is one, and he's one of those guys that has that low-grade prostate cancer. Well, when we look at 60, he may be 1.2 or 1.3. But a guy who has a higher grade cancer will go from 1 to 1.7 or 1.8. And that change over time in a year, we know if your PSA goes up by more than 0.75 nanograms per mil, no matter what your PSA is, you probably need a biopsy. We don't wait till somebody has a PSA of 4. Ken, when people tune into this show, first thing is they're going to be shocked that they're going to listen to a show that isn't about COVID. Yeah, that's right. (laughs) Uh, I have to admit, we're guilty as charged. It's been our focus now for quite a while. But I've got to ask, how depressed are the numbers of people who are getting themselves properly checked and screened and during this time of COVID when people seem to be avoiding just about everything but unless they suddenly find themselves with COVID? Bill, it's so scary. There have been many estimates out there about all the excess deaths that are occurring in the United States and around the world because people couldn't get care initially when COVID first hit, but now are too afraid to go out and be seen at the hospital. And, you know, that's been estimated to be in the hundreds of thousands. And we're going to see those numbers spike for a while because all the people that didn't get their colon cancer screening, all the people that didn't have their mammograms, all the people that didn't get their prostates checked, they're going to end up with more advanced disease that's not curable. So we're going to see this downstream effects of this horrible pandemic for multiple years yet. Dr. Kenneth Pienter from Johns Hopkins, I want to thank you for joining us today. This was a a dynamic conversation. Of course, Dr. Stephen Tabak, 
can how can people follow you? They can follow me on Twitter at Pienta underscore Brady. My website is KennethJPienta.com. We're Still Practicing is produced by A.J. Mosley. Engineering and Mastering by Steve Rickyberg. Music for We're Still Practicing is composed and performed by Celeste and Eric Dick. Don't forget to hit the subscribe button so you don't have to hunt around for our next episode. Stay healthy, everybody. From Kirkco Media. Media for your mind.